Greetings and welcome to Dead for Filth. I'm your host, Michael Verratti, and this is the podcast for all things queer horror and beyond. On this week's episode, I'm excited to welcome a guest whose body of work has not only impacted the zeitgeist, but made her a veritable legend in the process. Debuting as tough as nails Space Marine Vasquez in James Cameron's Aliens, she became an instant icon, only to follow with roles in fan favorites and cult hits like Near Dark, Terminator 2, and Titanic. In the world of TV, she's appeared on such celebrated shows as ER, 24, and Six Feet Under. Outside of acting, she's also the co-founder of Jeanette Bras, a company committed to helping women find the right fit. Please welcome to the show actor, entrepreneur, and genre icon, Jeanette Goldstein. <laughs> Hi. Hello. Welcome to the show. Oh, well, thank you for inviting me. I'm really excited to have you here. And obviously, with all of these amazing roles in films that, like, film after film, you've just hit impact the zeitgeist on <laughs> on the tongues of in mouth like minds of fans everywhere uh i feel like there's gonna be a lot to discuss um but before we discuss any of that i'd like to start the show the same way i start every show with the same first question i ask every guest and it is simply this why horror and you can interpret that however you want why do you think horror appeals to you or why do audiences find themselves drawn to horror but why horror ah okay why horror well i'm um I always think for myself, because uh, I'm I'm not a fan of like gore and blood, but I, I always think of like the idea of you're, you're horrified at something, something that just like b- touches you deeply and it's horrific, you know, right. that word. And, um, you know, to me, the, the, the two most horrific films that I'd seen, and it's when I was very young, I was like eight. Um, some for some reason, a friend's father took us to see um, Planet of the Apes, mm. and I don't know if that would be considered horror. Um, but my mother had just gotten very sick, and I guess <laughs> he was taking care of me and and my best friend. And um, I always felt like with blood and horror, I could always you know put my hands over my eyes, and then right. it'd be like I didn't see it, so it didn't affect me. But the end of the movie, when they've escaped and it's, you know, happily ever after, and then they come upon the Statue of Liberty, I, I mean, it just it just shook me to my core. Um, and I had to be um, picked up and taken home by my father. And, um, but I, and then I had the same reaction to the, um, the Night of the Living Dead. Again, I saw it on the TV, it, it being black and white, kind of documentary. I mean, I wasn't quite sure you know, is this real? It's not real. And then it was horrifying. And I've never liked, I don't like zombie films and things like that. But I kept watching it. And like the happy ending, they're saved. And then all of a sudden, the good old boy takes a shot at the hero and kills. Again, the same thing. It's like, nothing matters. (laughs) And it's, it's, uh, that's to me what like horror is. It's sort of like this deep, deep feeling of the, I guess the lack of control that you have as a as a human being. It's interesting too that you uh, pinpoint both of those movies. Obviously, because you saw them at an age that it affected you. Right. But uh, you're right. I don't know that many people would consider Planet of the Apes horror, but I completely can see that train of thought because mm-hmm. it is all about a social message and mm-hmm. sort of the evils of man and look what it's done to the world. Uh, also, uh, for listeners who aren't aware, Rod Serling, who created the Twilight Zone, uh, did. I believe one of the drafts of the script, which led to the surprise ending. And it oh. has that sort of social impact. And uh, in a similar way, Night of the Living Dead, I feel like is a very social conscious horror film. Oh, absolutely. And uh, I'm interested then that these are the movies that really affected you because 
it's something we talk about on the show a lot that that horror can can take on many different identities but social commentary is is definitely chief among them and the idea that um you were sensitive to that is is really fascinating to me, especially at an early age. Well, it, it hit me, I mean, personally, because losing my mother at eight, you know, what happened was she didn't die, but she woke up as a completely different person, which is, you know, it's that's kind of like a premise of a horror film. Sure. Your mom, she goes to sleep, and then she is in a coma, and then she survives, but she's not your mother anymore. She's a different person, because she had a, a form of sort of encephalitis sort of thing. And um, that that has always I've always kind of gone back to that touch point of what truly was was horror to me. I mean, some right. people have like their for the sexual awakening, like Carrie is a big, you know, momentous horror film. And I, I mean, I love Carrie. And that's wrapped in with sexuality and blood and all of that. Um, I always seem to go back to this idea of your world, what you thought was is not your world, and that things can be taken in a second and come back as something false and I mean it's it's a that's the kind of primeval feeling I get from when watching horror the, the horror that really affects me right so do you think that there is a cathartic benefit to horror then because we can put that into the screen what we maybe we we're existentially dealing with or god I don't know I never I never <laughs> <laughs> I don't I don't get any catharsis from it I mean I know people do I mean I just got back from a horror convention and I love going I love the horror fans. I mean, they're the best. They're the, the funnest. So many children, um, the creativity, the play. Um, so I know it's the idea of, you know, the skulls and c- catharsis. It's For me, it's that's never been its appeal because it always sticks with me, bothers me deeply. Sure. The horror films that I, I relate to have never... They've never solved a problem. They've always made me aware of the deeper truth, you know. Well, so you just returned from a horror convention. Mm -hmm. And uh, one of the things that sometimes when we talk about horror fandom, obviously some people find their ways into this in different ways. But when you talk to actors, I've I've had many actors say that, you know, as an actor, you look for work and horror sort of chooses you. (laughs) And I'm... I'm then interested in that path because you're attending horror conventions. Obviously, you have this sort of uh, fan base in the world of genre. Mm-hmm. So let's go back a little bit to the beginnings and, and talk about your origins in the world of acting. Was this something that you were always interested in from a young age? or In acting? Yes, yeah. absolutely. Um, I just, I love pretending. I mean, as any kid loves pretending, but I also... Um, fascinated with this idea of living different lives mm-hmm. and being frustrated that I could only have one one life <laughs> and, <laughs> you know and I, I was just given this and by pretending I could pretend to be other people and I'm um, so when I found out I guess it was like in high school that you could actually study to do this you know and learn and it was like a real job I, I was like all in I mean, just completely like, oh, but there's drama school. There's a college for, you know, to learn this. I was because I I really love um, study and learning as well. And you're uh, native California, right? Los Angeles. I was born in L.A. Yeah. But you studied in the U.K. I studied. Yeah, I studied. Well, I studied um, both in New York at the Circle in the Square Theater. Mm -hmm. I did their two year professional program. And then I went to London and I did a one year postgraduate 
at the Weber Douglas Academy for Dramatic Art. Now, I read somewhere, and correct me if I'm wrong, mm-hmm. is it true that you were also a gymnast? Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> when I was a little girl, from 9 to 12. Okay. Yes, I was I was a competitor, which is basically, that's it, you're over the hill. <laughs> you know, I mean, I was, but no, I, I, I loved, I was a tomboy. Um, I loved doing kind of dangerous things, jumping off of roofs. And, you know, again, I was like, well, you know, you can train to do something like this. And so, yeah, no, I, I um, was in the an elite gymnast camp. Uh, I was, you know, competitive. I was hanging on by my fingernails. I mean, um, so when I hit 12 and that was it, it was over. Uh, I like the the self-description of tomboy and saying that you're jumping off roofs because mm-hmm. it kind of feels like you were preparing yourself to be an action heroine from an <laughs> early age. Uh, were those, when you say multiple lives, were those the kind of roles that you were always drawn to, kind of like the hero or? Yeah, well, I was, a, I mean, I was a tomboy and I mean, again, I was raised by my dad and I had a brother and, you know, he was always like, you know, come on, let's, let's get up, let's do something, let's you know, be tough and all that. So that was always... Um, my idea of um, agency. And I, like, I really hated girls. And that could have been a reaction to many things, you know, like, as I, my, my thing was, I felt like girls had mothers, and right. I did. not so I wasn't. A, so I've been, you know, I've been thinking about a lot of this, but with the trans movement, I'm thinking, because I identified so much as a boy, but, but only because boys had agency. Right. So if pink was a color for girls, my favorite color was blue. Um, you know, everything that, so it was a weird thing, like anything that was a girl was bad because you right. threw like a girl. So I, so what, so I, when I pretended to be characters, they always were boys like Huck Finn and, and just because there wasn't, there was nothing like there was Pippi Longstockings. That was like the only girl who kind of like did cool stuff in my mind, but she was kind of weird i don't know <laughs> yeah so she definitely wasn't an action hero she had like an uh, a magical quality to her yeah um, i love saving saving i mean you know being the hero and saving things and i mean i i had a younger brother and i i was very into saving him and right. beating people up for him he was very sweet and he was you know and i I was not sweet. <laughs> well, I think it's really interesting uh, what you're saying about the idea of agency and mm-hmm. how for uh, little girls, we just kind of never sell the idea that that's something they can have. And uh, I think that especially of interest to listeners of the show and sort of the discussion of the queer relationship to horror mm-hmm. and in queer can mean many things. It doesn't necessarily just mean gay. And mm. so the idea that queer is always relates to an otherness or an outsider dumb. Mm-hmm. Um, I just really think there's something powerful about the idea that you related to those things because you were just looking for more agency for yourself. And I, I think that that's probably something a lot of, of, of listeners can relate to uh, because the world so frequently tries to tell us who we are mm-hmm. that maybe, you know, pretend is how we initially start telling the world, no, this is who I am. I don't know. It was a very deep side side journey, but... No, it's interesting. I mean, I I, 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 mean, I, I don't know how other kids, f- you know, feel. I guess everybody feels like an outsider in some way, or maybe not. Maybe there's some kids who grow up and feel completely a part of everything. And Right. Um, I certainly felt a part of my family, a very strong family and, and love for my brother and my father and, and, you know, and my mother too. I mean, like I said, she was just... Um, ill um 
But yeah, I very much was like, um, I was on Team Boy. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, I looked at the teams. Right. And it was so obvious which was the better team (laughs) to be on because of the language, you know, all that. You throw it. And I was like, okay, cool. I'm a boy. You know, or I'll be with the boys. Right. Yeah. So now that's interesting then leading into your career as an actor. You were training mm-hmm. in New York and then you go to the UK. Now, was it in the UK that you first auditioned for Aliens? It was, yeah. And it's my understanding that when you went to audition, you thought you were auditioning for a play? No. it. Um, I know there's so much kind of the internet, all these sort of... Well, that's why I like to... I have you here. I, would, <laughs> I can confirm or deny the, the internet exactly. rumor. Oh, of a play. That's really interesting. I hadn't heard that one. Um... No, I had, so I had moved to the UK and I had gotten married to my boyfriend who was an Englishman. And so I had become not a British British citizen, but I'd gotten my green card, which in England is called your resident alien card, okay. which is very important. And um, in England, you cannot become a member of the union, which means you can't work on stage screen unless you are legal they they protect their actors much more than we do over here um so there were a lot of people who would marry their gay best friend or they would marry you know i mean how it happened so they could work so and to get your resident alien card so i was i had completed my training and i was living there and doing i was doing a lot of theater and i had just gotten my um card my union card my british equity card and there was an audition in the actor's paper that for a film called Aliens, and they only wanted to see um, American or North American actors who had their resident alien card. So I didn't have an agent, so I wasn't sure what it was about. For like two seconds, I remember thinking, oh, alien, aliens, but it had been so long. I thought, no, no, um, it must be about this kind of underground of immigrants who marry to get their resident alien card. It made sense to me. So um, I went for the meeting, and I dressed kind of nicely I like light wash of makeup and (laughs) a pair of slacks with a little bit little heel and and it was a very um warm day unusual um in England and I had sort of like a a shift sleeveless shift on and um I showed up in the office and it was Gail Ann Hurd and behind her was this poster of Terminator which I had just seen and I remember walking in and I mean she was 29 at the time, this young woman. And I was like, oh, cool poster. I saw that movie. And she, you know, and she's like, uh, yes, we made that. I was like, oh, 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 wow. And she says, do you have any idea what this is about? And I'm like, no, I'm sorry. I, I don't. She says, well, it's the second part of Alien. Have you seen it? And I said, oh, I, yes, yes, I did. So, and um, it takes place on the planet, and it, the characters are uh, Marines. So, what I did was I just kind of flashed a a bicep, you know, I did a little, oh, oh, you know, I'm, and um, she said, oh, wow, um, how how are you so, you know, so fit? And I, I had said, oh, well, you know, I, I live near a, a boxing gym, and there's Miss, Mr. Britton happens to train there, and I just kind of got involved in bodybuilding, and he's so, she said, oh, but you're, you're an actor or you're a body, you're a bodybuilder. No, I said, no, I'm not a bodybuilder. I'm an actor. I just, this is kind of this weird hobby I do. I'm one of the few women in the gym and it's just, um, she said, well, do you know any other actresses who have, you know, lots of, I said, no, I don't. <laughs> I, I don't. I don't hardly know any other women. Um, she said, okay, well, you know, why don't you 
come back dressed more appropriately this time. <laughs> which I, you know, I wore my Doc Martens and my jeans and my hair scraped back. And, you know, um, take these lines. Um, they're for this role of, of Vasquez, this character Vasquez. But she's already been cast. You're not reading for her. We, um, we just want to see how you can read. Oh, interesting. So they did a little like bait and switch or no no it was cast it had been cast oh um i they were looking for the other women you know they were looking for you know legally you have to see before you bring over an american who's not a member of british equity you have to see all british equity members who there are a lot that are no, not a lot that are americans and and that they wanted to see who was there gotcha so they could say they did their due diligence you know, and they cast you. Know. So um, that's what they were doing with the women. They were saying, since the other roles had like one line here, one line there, they gave. So they gave me Vasquez, and I, I went home, and I, I, you know, I didn't know how. How do you do a read someone who isn't someone? I don't know. I mean, I just they don't give you the script. They gave me the, the you know, the sides, description yeah. of her, the sides, and the description was wonderful. And I was just like, well, hell, I'm just going to play it as her, and that's how they can see how I can read. And that's when they, um, it's a very long story. <laughs> I don't know if you're interested I, in I that. I think that everybody uh, would be very interested. This is, so, oh, okay. Yeah. Well, then, okay. So so I came in, I read it as Vasquez. And um, then Gail said, oh, um, do you have time to go for lunch and then like come back? And, and I was, yeah, sure. Um, being unemployed, no agent, nothing, you know. <laughs> um, sure, I got. I'll, I have a, a couple hours. Um, so she gave me. She said, "Here's this monologue. The, the character's name is Hudson. Again, it's already. You're not playing this character, <laughs> right? Like, okay, second character. I'm not playing. We just want to see how you can read. Oh God. Okay. So I go for lunch. I, it's this monologue that was cut out of the. Um, it's in the director's cut where he's. They're going down. It's like we got arms. We got. We got guns. We got. You know, this like dude thing. Right. So I. Very confused again, but what the hell? Came back, read it as my version of Hudson. And she said, great, thanks. And I you know, I was like very confused. Who am I reading for? What is, what's going on? And um, they called me back. And this is when I met James Cameron. And um, he started talking to me about the character of Vasquez. And we had this long discussion of who she was and the background. And then we did this kind of improv, crawling around on the floor. I just talk, 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 talk. And um, I guess what had happened, I, I didn't know, is that they had offered the role to this bodybuilder. Um, and she, they were thinking of doing what they had done with Arnold. That it was very important that the body, that, they, that the character had this physique. And they thought, well, we'll find a bodybuilder like we did with Arnold, and then we'll teach her how to act. Ah. And they they were in the process of doing that. I don't know where they were, but she had also had some uh, problems with the script because she had just become a born-again Christian. Thank you, Jesus. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> so there were there were things going on at this point. So this is why they, they were – he was talking to me, and what happened was um, after that meeting, they said to me, we're going to give you the script – we don't know which character we want you to play. I know this is strange, but we want to get you before anyone else does. <laughs> which, I, again, being unemployed and, you know, no agent, I thought, sure, get me quick, quick. Um, 
And they gave me the script to read, and I was like, I couldn't believe I was in a movie. It didn't matter to me which role, you know, when it came down to it. But of course, you know, two weeks later, I guess um, Jim had gone to the studio and completely lobbied for me. Um, and they, I got the call. You know, it was like, we've got great news for you. You're gonna, you're gonna play Vasquez. And that's how it kind of. It was a weird thing that happened. And your first movie. My first movie. Outrageous. I, I mean, know it's outrageous. I mean, I, you know, and the weird thing also is that you know the my my physique at the time was, you know, that was a product of two years of working out, doing this kind of crazy thing while I was doing plays and audition, and I was sort of at the best I was at the best shape of my entire life, and then two weeks later have an audition and. So it was it was weird. People say, "Did you work out for the movie?" I was like, "No, there's no." It was just this crazy. It was just like strange serendipity. Yeah, yeah, and being you know being from L.A. and being like, "No, I you know I'm not going to do movies or TV. I'm going to do theater." And you know, I was trained as a repertory actress, and I was just going to. And then being in, it was weird. It kind of they came and got me. Well, in some way, based on what we've been talking about, it feels like the journey was to this role because you're talking about you were always interested in pretend and that led to your interest in theater and taking on different roles but at the same time as a kid you uh, were interested in the boy things and the tough things so then this role comes up that is sort of the embodiment of all of that oh yeah it was like I I always joked it was every 12 year old boy's dream you know (laughs) to be a space marine oh marina yeah and that's you Uh, (laughs) so Obviously, here you are in this part that kind of seems like a culmination of a lot of different things. Uh, And as you know, in the time since, there are not a lot, there were not a lot of characters like Vasquez when that movie came out. And a lot of people instantly became attached to that character for a multitude of reasons. Now, obviously, in the discussion on a show like this, Mm -hmm. there is a large queer following for the character. But also, I've, I've read in interviews where you discussed your preparation for the character was more about the ambiguity of who she was mm-hmm. and her self-certainty. Could you speak to that a little bit? Well, you know, any character that I create, you know, whether it's, you know, part of Shakespeare's um, plays or, you know, restoration drama or, you know, or film, you know, you're, you're trying to find who, who the person is. Their right. circumstances, how they grew up, uh, what makes them tick. You know, what's at risk. What do they want? What do they need? And um, as far as her, I mean, she had the short hair because she's a marine, right? She is completely jacked because she is been living in prison and you're doing pull-ups and you know she's there's all these reasons she's very she obviously to me you know did not finish school mm-hmm. um and when my answer always when people say oh was she gay was she straight i always say i just answer with um her what she would say is none of your fucking business <laughs> <laughs> no and i think that's great which which i was thinking about that today and i was like you know what maybe that's just the that's to me that's the way you say gender fluid these days <laughs> right. it's a way you say it when you're not you haven't gone to some liberal arts college in the east coast no because i think that uh one of the things that seems very cool about the character and i've heard you say this about her before mm-hmm. is that vasquez is vasquez and without apologies right and 
maybe that is beyond labels. Mm-hmm. And maybe that's why the character lands both with gay people and straight people. Yeah, it's really it's it's fascinating. I mean, it's like I was you know, when I was I was creating the character and I was talking with Jim about it and how I was going to play it. It was funny because in the 80s it was always this thing about, oh, you have to be likable or they have to uh, you know, uh, identify with you or, or to be and I was like, I'm not going to be likable. I'm going to be who this person is and he says don't worry about it right you know he was like ah who cares um but yeah though I, I mean i i knew that you know gay women if she has such a butch kind of uh presentation would be i mean uh, my god you know she's amazing and then but i yeah it's like gay men straight men straight women they find i mean a friend of mine is um he was a, a gay immigrant from Guatemala, and he said, you know, he he I didn't the first time he saw, you know, very feminine presenting. He identified with her so much, and I would have thought he would be the opposite, aside from being a Latino. Right. But he's like, no, no, it's just that she was different, and and I just, you know, she was my icon, and she who she was who she was, you know, and. Yeah, it's it's really fascinating. Well, with that list and especially that personal story of, of that particular individual, mm-hmm. it makes me think a little bit about our earlier conversation about agency. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if people associate and connect to Vasquez for that reason that she represents a character that so often on screen we don't see given agency. And for all of these people who are yearning for that, here's suddenly... A symbol of that is—is I mean, is that something yeah. that could be true? Well, it's interesting because um, I mean, I have a lot of um, older women, middle-aged women, who, who of which I am one of, come up to me um, and say, and when I go to different parts of the country, like so, I was in uh, Virginia, and they'll say, "Oh my God, I saw you, and I just." I'd never seen a, a woman like that, and, and and it gave me, you know, I thought about leaving my husband, or I had cancer. Oh, no, I swear to God, a woman goes, I just told them, you know, to fuck off in my, you know, secretarial job. And, I mean, all these amazing stories of these kind of older, white, middle-aged women, because I'm, you know, wherever I am, and telling me these, like, why they hooked on to Vasquez is fascinating, because, I mean, actually, all through the film, there's all these amazing strong women. Obviously, Ripley, the young girl, um, Newt, all of you know. And but there was something about Vasquez that attracted them beyond. Um, I'm not, you know what? I'm not sure because um, I, I mean, I, it's you know, I, I have men, Marines, you know, I mean, I have, the greatest thing was seeing, is seeing young boys cosplaying me, but playing, cosplaying a a woman. That's awesome. Just, just, it's really interesting because I I always had to play a boy. So it's great, you know. Well, I think it's cool too, because in the wider discussion of this character, and of course, then by proxy, your performance of this character, you have created something that so many people from so many different walks of life are connecting to. And when you look at the the kind of greater landscape of pop culture to have been able to be part of the creation of such a character is really important. And that's super cool part of your legacy. So, I mean, I think that uh, 
it, it must be awesome and to still be talking about her. It's it is kind of it's strange. I mean, the it you know it comes from the script and from James Cameron him writing it and mm-hmm. the directing and all the other actors. I mean, it's being able to be a part of um, creating something. And oh my god, and the the special effects. I mean, those practical special effects are crazy good. I mean, I've seen the I see I just saw the film again. <laughs> and they, they, they played it. Like, I'm embarrassed to say how many times I've seen it, but I usually go like, oh, no, I don't want to see it. And then I, I watch it. But um, yeah, all of those things. I mean, it's a great piece of, I mean, I, art. I mean, and, and it's really no different than, than a, a great play. I mean, if you have a great a script, director, actors, the sound design, um, you know, it it lasts. I mean, I, I'm amazed. I am amazed that 33 years later, whatever, people are still, you know, they say, how did you see this? And she said, well, my grandmother showed it to me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, ooh. She said, I was like, ooh, that's bad grandparenting. He's like six, six years old. So I'm wondering then, you know, this is your first movie. And when you're making it, did you think 30 years later no. you'd be talking about it? No, not at all. I mean, I... Well, first of all, I, I was scared shitless because I had never, you know, never been in a movie and never been taught about cameras or anything. So that was really scary. And it was, uh, it was really, it was Bill Paxton and all the other guys who helped me so much, the technical parts of it. Because there was no time to add, you know, where right. to put my eye and what, you know, a master means and all that stuff. And, you know, he's like, oh, darn, we're just going to earn while we learn. <laughs> so in some ways, I mean, not only is it awesome that Aliens is your first movie, but Aliens is also kind of your film school because oh, yeah. you learned film sets from that. Oh, yeah. Talk about one hell of a master class. Yeah. Well, I'm a complete director groupie. I mean, every film that I get to do, I mean, it's, I'm always like, ah, let me watch the director, you know. Right. Um, So, absolutely. I'm just fascinated. It was an incredible way to learn. I mean, I'm saying terrifying because I was always like, oh no, what if I screw up, you know? Well, and as a a director groupie, I like that term, Mm -hmm. especially for, you know, an actor to like keep an eye on the director and learn from them. Uh, you have this like amazing run with James Cameron where you were worked with him so many times and he is a director who time and again has affected pop culture. Mm-hmm. Um, but when you're working on a set like that, is that something that you're even aware of? Or it's just you're like, here's someone who is I'm working for or I'm working with and you just do the job. Well, um, as far as you know who he was, I mean, I saw Terminator and I right. thought that was such a cool movie. I loved it. I mean, I... I um, but, you know, I I love genre, but I, I mean, I loved it because I remember, actually, a friend of mine was in it. She had a had a part at the beginning. And um, so that's one of the reasons I went to see it. But I just thought, wow, what a amazing love story, you know, of the two of them when they finally get together. It was so earned, you know, why they had to be together and produce a child. It wasn't like, ooh, I love you. Ugh. You know, it was so real. So I was really happy to be in a film by this guy who written and directed this wonderful film but you know you don't know who he is and and the interesting thing about uh, being in like ooh a big Hollywood movie is a lot of the guys who I was with had some of them had been in um, oh god Revolution they had just filmed Revolution with Al Pacino it was going to be this big movie and it failed so they were all like you know what you never you never know what's going to happen you just make it you do your work right and then it's over you you know whether it does well or not is really out of your hands. I mean, it can be terrible marketing. It can be an amazing film like Near Dark. Marketing is 
wrong and it doesn't do anything and is rediscovered, but doesn't change anything about the film being good. Sure. Uh, and Near Dark is another film that has impacted pop culture. But like you said, it took a while to grow into oh, yeah. that. And um, Catherine Bigelow, of course, an amazing filmmaker. Oh, yeah. Uh, you know, what's interesting is I was thinking about this on the drive over here is I know that you get asked about the inherent queerness or lack thereof in Vasquez. Mm -hmm. But to me, vampires of all monsters are some of the most queer oriented creatures. Oh, really? <laughs> and do you ever, does anyone ever discuss, I mean, I don't know that Near Dark necessarily is queer coded in any way, but there is just an otherness about vampires that exists. So I don't know yeah. if this has ever come up in conversation or. You know, no, not the queerness of it. Um, definitely, you know, for me, the um, driving, the sort of theme of it was this idea of the, of the family, the outlaw family, the outsiders. Um, I, you know, I got I, people's attraction to genres or or stories. You know, that come from so many different ways. I mean, when I, I always love asking. You know, so what? What? Why were you so affected? You know, have them tell me why right. it touched them, as opposed to me explaining what I was trying to do. Because I'm sure a lot of times when you're preparing for a role, you're just thinking about executing the story as opposed to how the story affects or no. Yeah. No, yeah. I, I I mean that's you know, I just start with start with the script. Right. That's why it's really hard to do bad films. <laughs> I mean I I'm not <laughs> I cannot do I have a hard time keeping it up during something that's really bad. Um but you start with the script. I mean that's how I was trained in the theater, you know, um you start with the script and you investigate it and you who the person is and and what they want and you know just what that story is. Um because really the only I mean I could look I look at it as, you know, thematically and and intellectually and all of those colors that go into it. Right. But when it comes down to actually doing the job, you're just you have to be in the moment of what you're doing. And then you you hope it resonates mm -hmm. in all those ways. Well, in, in terms of preparing characters and, and taking on different identities, mm -hmm. uh, of course, we briefly mentioned your dark. But I, I was wondering, and it, I think that maybe based on your discussion of your childhood uh, and, and your interests in sort of like the more tomboy characters, maybe this was a moot point. But when you come out of the gates as strongly as you do with a character like Vasquez, mm -hmm. uh, and you know how the industry tends to like to put people in boxes. Oh, yeah. <laughs> are you, was that a difficult field to navigate after that movie? Were you often, because I, I see you're like playing kind of darker, edgier, action-oriented roles. Was that ever something that you felt limited you? Or was that even something you even thought about? No, I didn't. Well, I don't think that doing edgier roles limits me. I mean, because that's, sure. that's fantastic. It's, I mean, it was very strange that my first role that I did as far as, you know, Hollywood, whatever, people seeing me, I looked nothing like how I look every day. Right. Um, so 
and then the next one I did. So people aren't really sure, at least they weren't for a long time, who, what I look like, as if that fucking matters. <laughs> I, I did notice <laughs> I, good Lord. ever wrote your IMDb profile refers to you as a chameleon-like actor. <laughs> and I wondered, is that, I mean, for some performers, that is a, a boon, the idea that you can transform into well, a role. It, but is that a boon in Hollywood? No, it's not. <laughs> <laughs> it's not, it's not. Um, it really isn't. Um, you know, it. The good thing about it is it's a boon. It has been a boon for me for, I feel like, very special directors or writers. Right. But there's not that many of them out there. <laughs> and, it, and I've been incredibly fortunate, you know, to, to work with wonderful directors who appreciate that. But um, I'm not I'm not a fa- quick read. Like, even as myself, it's like, what are, what are you, Irish? Are you Italian? Are you, what? Uh, you know, I mean, I'm not a quick read, which is fine. Right. I like that. Like I, I like colors. You can't. What, what's the name of that color? Is that mauve? Is that uh, you know? It's there, but they're so. Um, but no, it's as far as like um, you can't say get me a Jeanette Goldstein type. <laughs> um, I don't even know what that is or who to play myself. I mean, I. Oh, that's interesting. So Jeanette Goldstein doesn't even necessarily know what a Jeanette Goldstein type is. Well, I've been trying to figure that out for a while but uh. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I think that's that's cool in a way because you're still able to shape what you want that to be yeah yeah and as far, but as far as you know like getting so the type each I was typecast when I came back to Los Angeles because I wasn't in Los Angeles so, so no one had met me so all right. they saw was you know um, Vasquez um, I guess they assumed Goldstein was my married name or whatever, and I, I, you know, I at, there was a certain point where I, um, well, actually, before I did Aliens, I, th- I had thought of changing my last name, and only changing it because it was such an identifier of my ethnic background. Right. And I did not. I mean, it's like you know Gomez. I mean, it's just like, you know, as Jewy as one can get. And I thought, but that's that was the reason I kept it, because as a kid, I could always pass as being not Jewish and I was very um I want I didn't want I thought if I got rid of my last name which I could have easily because my married name was Stevens right. Jeanette Stevens <laughs> oh, yeah, <laughs> so, it's, it's like very like 50s marquee Je- Jeanette Stevens <laughs> you know it would have been I you know there was something in me that went I'm not going to pass right so but I always think about that and I go you know that's always identified me or, or made assumptions about who I was and who I am. Again, like why who I am as an actor should matter at all. So has there been resistance in rooms because of that fact, do you think? That I'm Jewish? Yeah. I, you know, I don't know. I mean. Well, I only ask because you, you say that it does put a well, box. So. why there are so, I'm one of the few Goldsteins in Hollywood, although there are a lot of. <laughs> Golds and gold. I mean, why why do people change their last name? And and that was done in the fifty. You know, that right. was the idea of of having more opportunities and passing and not being, especially as an actor, not being um, boxed into like, oh, your last name's Italian. Oh, you're an, you know, oh, I have a a friend who um, his uh, last name he's a he's redheaded, blue eyed, but he's Italian, 
And his last name, you know, is Makulan. And they always go, um, oh, so you're Irish. You know, he's auditioning for Irish. Yes, absolutely. I'm, you know, you know, just like lie. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yes, yes, absolutely. He's like, absolutely. It's Makulano. And I'm a Sicilian, but I just happen to have red hair. But the part is Irish. And so I'm going to let you believe what you want to believe. Right. So, you know, I don't I don't know. I don't know. It would. um, Well, I I think that you keeping your last name, as you said, is important for visibility's sake. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I thought I was there was something about that that I always felt that. The fact that the name was such an identifier and a lot of people were like, I don't I want to change that. It was like me being the ornery bitch that I was. I was like, fuck you. I'm going to keep it. So you come back to L.A., mm-hmm. uh, you say people aren't necessarily, they don't know who you are quite yet because they're looking at this character mm-hmm. who isn't really like you. Uh, and there are these roles that you start taking on that all seem to be in the action space mm-hmm. or or more pulse pounding, if you will. Mm-hmm. I do have to ask, and uh, longtime listeners of the, the show know, because uh, it comes up every so often, that I am a not-too-secret uh, action movie fan, because to me, action movies have all the excessive horror movies just in a different way. <laughs> and uh, in Lethal Weapon 2, you have <laughs> one of the most iconic moments, uh, to me, that is definitive 80s excess, that diving board scene. So just, it like, I, I, for me, just completely for me, have to ask about the filming of that scene. <laughs> Well, I'll tell you, it, it was not me on the diving board. Well, actually, it was me stepping onto the diving board, and I was six months pregnant. Oh, which, wow. to me, was that's a horror film for yeah. any actress. Because <laughs> I was like, I look, usually one would diet as much as you can, you know, like. Right. And I was like, they kept, I... They kept moving it and moving it, and I knew I was pregnant. And I was like, oh, no, I don't want to say anything. And they finally moved it, and I had to tell um, Richard Donner, you know, I was like, I'm pregnant, you know, and it's, I'm going to, and uh, his his response was, does she know who the father is? <laughs> and, <I was> like, <laughs> and they said, wardrobe goes, of course she knows who the father is. They just want to know about the bathing suit scene. Is that a problem? So I looked a lot chunkier than I, I would have been. But um, no, that was not me being blown up. That was a, a stunt double, of course. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, I assume, but it is. I, I just wonder, as an actor, you read a script and you get to a point where it's just like, and the diving board explodes. Just like, what's your reaction? I mean, obviously, you took the role. But. I've exploded in many films, right? <laughs> um, oh, yeah. No, I mean, it's funny. I mean, we, we called ourselves the ethno cops. You know, it was the black cop, the Irish cop, the you know Italian cop. We were, you know, and then we get killed in this massive hit. It was kind of a, a nutty sort of. Yeah. Very 80s excess. Yeah. For sure. I mean, <laughs> I was just thinking about it this morning, and I was like, no, you have to ask her about that. Oh, you, you're not going to ask me about Fair Game? Talk oh. about 80s. Oh, that's the, the worst movie. Oh, my. You, have you not seen that? Fair Game with... Uh, Cindy Crawford. Cindy Crawford. It's first her, and it, last, last movie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I have seen it, but I'll tell Ugh. you, it has been uh, a while. Ugh, it is so bad. It's actually getting better because it's getting even worse, which makes it better. Do you, so do you prescribe to the, the school of so bad it's good or no? Yeah. <laughs> God. Oh, well, was... so, okay, yeah, let's talk about Fair Game. Uh, t- t- tell me, how, how was that just one that you, you auditioned for, or was it because? It, that one was, well, when I went back, came back to Hollywood, everyone, you know, they guess they just assumed I was that character, and I would walk into a room, and they'd be like, oh, you're short. 
And I'm like, yeah, that was a movie. The camera's low. I mean, I, I, it would be, you know, in those rooms where I was like, so it was, or I'd be, you know, though I'd be the maid or I was just, you know. And um, I mean, that's how one of the, not one of the reasons I did Terminator 2, but um, Jim was always joking how, oh, they, you know, they're getting typecast. It's so ridiculous. Can't they say you're an actress? You know, and you're right. you're a mom. You're so sweet. I had a kid then and you're, you're just like the best mom. And then he called me up and he said, I got a mom role for you. And I was like, oh, a mom role. I'm so happy. And of course, it's a mom who, you know, killed a terrible mom. And, you know, <laughs> I was going to say the, the, the thing about Terminator 2 especially is like, so you're finally a mom. Yeah, exactly. But what... It doesn't get failed to get mentioned, but it is something that when discussing it, people, f- you know, forget you're also a T-1000 briefly. Exactly. So like, oh, yeah. yeah. No, no. I worked on that a lot. I, I met, uh, you know, when uh, when I uh, met Robert Patrick for the first time, it was great. We, we got together. I went over to his apartment and he told me, you know, what he was uh thinking of his movements like the like a a praying mantis he said he you know the way he because his ears stick up and because I had to become him and so it was fun it was great yeah we worked a lot on just subtly um Janelle becoming the T-1000 in just these ways that her eyes moved and I mean I didn't know if anyone would notice that but no but I think that's really cool and I love the idea of two actors collaborating to affect and I, in in a way, a single performance. Yeah, it was great. That's super cool. It was really, it yeah. was really cool. It was really cool. I got to become, you know, him and, and learn about what his process was, how he developed his character. Well, you got to be a mom in Titanic, and you weren't, I, yeah. you weren't a T one thousand there. No, so no, I was a good mom. Yeah, you finally got some. I mean, you know, I put them to bed before. I... <laughs> she she was doing her maternal best. I, I, I was. I was <laughs> in like, terrible circumstances. So, all right, we're we're looking at a range of roles from mm-hmm. Space Marine to Foster Mom slash T one thousand to Good Irish Mom, mm-hmm. Vampire, Exploding Diving Board Cop. All, <laughs> all... I was a very good mom in in the Vampire Mom. Yes, you were. I was. Yeah. Well, see, because vampires, as you said, it's about family. Right. It may be a, a bizarre family to the outside world. But... Exactly, but completely, completely, yeah. So these roles, even though we, we were talking about the idea of being put in a box, there mm-hmm. is a range and different kinds of characters there. But mm-hmm. looking at your career uh, and the kind of roles you've played, is there a sort of role that you haven't played that you always wished that you had been the opportunity to do so? Ooh. Well, you know, it's funny. I've I've gotten to do really interesting people, and mm. that's the part. What I like, I said, it's it's great. This idea of um, complicated, complicated people. The one thing I got to do it in Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas was comedy. I mean, so I people ask me sometimes, like, what is your favorite role? I I love that because I got to be do comedy because I. I would love to do more of that. So in the other thing I was going to ask you, mm-hmm. because you have a, a, a pretty big resume of different credits in both film mm-hmm. and TV. If there was a role that you wish more people had given attention to, is Fear and Loathing that role? Hmm. Be- because obviously when we're sitting here, we're talking about like hit after hit, like Lethal Weapon 2, Near Dark, Aliens, Terminator. But you've been in many other things as well. Uh, so is there anything that you're like, I wish more people had watched this as well? Well, at first it was near dark because people hadn't seen it. It was amazing that people kept coming up to me and saying, you know, oh, you're in my favorite film. And I would assume it was Aliens and they'd say near dark. And I was like, oh, my God, how did you see this film? Because it's unavailable, you know. Um, But 
Yeah, no, I guess, you know, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, you know, the, the scene is just one scene. It's toward the end of the movie, which is kind of crazy. And the, um, But I, you know, I love the book. I love, oh my God, Terry Gilliam, Johnny Depp, and he's a Toro. I mean, it was, you know, a dream, but also just being able to do a comedic role because, you know, you get pegged, um, you know, as, as uh, drama and action and, and I've not gotten to do comedy. Right. So, yeah, it would be, it would be great. I mean, people, people know the book know when I say, oh, I'm Alice the Maid because it's a chapter in the book and they go, oh, you know. Uh, no, I love that. And that film is so, well, I guess gonzo would be the word in, in reverence <laughs> to, to Hunter S. Thompson. That was his, his terms. So. Yeah, it's a crazy, it's a, it's a crazy movie. It's hard. It's a, I don't know how successful, you know, they say it's hard to listen and see at the same time. And there's just so much there, the narrative on it and the visual. You have to see it a, quite a few times to really, I don't know, see all of it. And even then you you kind of miss it because it's just like you said gonzo but sometimes those are the best movies that require you to rewatch that mm -hmm. compel you to rewatch yeah i'm interested uh in the discussion of near dark because with something like aliens which was such a hit immediately mm -hmm. and then something like near dark which took its time what's that like to have something be rediscovered a movie that you're like oh i did this but it's kind of fallen by the wayside and then see it surge back up that that was amazing because i I loved that movie. I loved that script. Uh, you know, Catherine Bigelow, so, such a talent. And, you know, it was so maddening that the release, you know, they, they released it on Halloween and it went up right against The Lost Boys, which is a completely different film. And, and that so few people got to see it. Um, but people did. I mean, it was always the... Um, Somebody would go into the video store and and ask for a vampire movie, and and the the clerk behind the counter went, "No, you got to see this." You know what I mean? <laughs> kind of like, right. "No, dude, you know this is the greatest one." Um, so it was how it was like passed around, you know. But I remember speaking with Catherine, speaking with Steve, you know, the producer and the company that had um, released it went bankrupt, and the rights were just a mess. Right. They were an absolute mess. So it was kind of like, "There's no one's gonna see it." And when I got the call from this, it was a German company that said, I couldn't believe it. They said, we loved it. We disentangled the rights. We're going to make a documentary. I, I was so happy for people just to re, more people to rediscover it. That's so cool. Because it's such a beautiful, you know, it was also ahead of its time. I mean, I, I understand why it was really hard to release. Right. Well, I think during the height of 80s horror, there was kind of that idea that horror meant one specific mm -hmm. kind of excessive boom, boom, boom. Whereas Near Dark, I think, is a very thoughtful movie. Yeah, and then also at the same time, yeah, horror was one thing. And then art film, right. independent film, was another. It was like French, you know, it was right. French. Um, there wasn't that uh, crossing ever. There was like Grindhouse, you know, right. which it kind of it, it had a nod to. And then there was, you know, this beautiful art. And it wasn't it was the combination of the two. Um, that made it so unique. And I can understand why promoting it, it would have been tricky, really tricky. But I think like all great pieces of art, it found its audience. It did. It did. It was it would be playing at um, 
the Museum of Modern Art, they played it at the museum. I mean, I'd hear about, you know, because Catherine is a, went to art school and she'd say, oh, you know, they're playing it. at. So it was always appreciated in the underground. And um, I guess this was the dawn of the internet and people would talk about it because uh, people would come to me and, and say, oh, how can we get it released? And I said, well, just keep talking about it. I don't know. Maybe somebody will think, okay, we can make some money on it. And it, you know, it happened. Yeah, I think the internet has been really great for a lot of films in the way that it allows the the people who felt like, am I the only person who loves this to discover? Mm-hmm. No, you're not. It's just creating that conversation. Uh, and I'm glad. I'm glad that Near Dark's community rose up to, to help it uh, find its path because it's so cool. It's such a cool movie. It was funny because I was in um, this... Uh, this magazine it said like the hundred best films you've never seen right, right. <laughs> I was like I was in two of them I was like oh that's great I guess you know it was near dark and it was Miracle Mile ah I was gonna ask what the other one was yeah and it was funny oh, oh goodness uh, so before we head out I want to talk about what you've been up to lately oh. uh, so outside of all of the you know from from vampires to space marines to bras. To bras. So uh, tell me about this this new chapter of your life as a co-founder and entrepreneur of, of, of a bra company. Of, of Jeanette Bras. Yes. Where the alphabet starts at D is our <laughs> slogan. Well, you know, it's a crazy, crazy thing. Um, never planned on being a business person, you know, back in the Shamatha business. Right. Um, you know, it's it just was, you know, there actually is an alien's story to this oh. um, connected crazy kind of one well, well you know in near dark i was very bosomy and and all of that and and i'm a very bosomy young woman which was the end of my gymnastics career if you want to know why it ended <laughs> age 12 I, I, I can see uh bosom and, and flips and things yeah, probably no, yeah did not work out and the tomboy thing also it didn't work out i was like i had to change my think about changing my whole thing it was like i was a tomboy and then it was like oh gotta change my persona here <laughs> no it's truly but um like in in aliens the reason the the pull-up scene was my idea because of the line hey vesca you ever been mistaken for a man I was always worried about that because I was like, oh, we're wearing these tight T-shirts. This is not going to play. I mean, he's he's stupid, <laughs> but he's not that stupid. Right. So I suggested, I said, you know, I to Jim, I could do these really difficult pull-ups. If you shoot it while I'm doing it and the camera's right there, maybe that line will work a lot better because I'm really, you know, obviously busty. So um, always dealing with this. And um, I just was frustrated and I had gone to actually you know it's oh I had gone to a fan convention in England so and I was signing autographs in a mall very glamorous <laughs> and um in this mall there was this store that sold bras for women who were a d cup and up and I was like oh my god you know and I saw my lunch I went there I tried all these things on my mind was blown I couldn't believe it um they were beautiful. I was like, why doesn't somebody open a store like this? Why don't they import these bra? And my husband just said, well, why don't we do it? And right. he's a painter. He's not a businessman either. So it was just this crazy idea. Um, and it, you know, it took off and 10, over 10 years later, I mean, I have three stores in Los Angeles opening my fourth next month, going to move, go to the East Coast. I mean, it's... It's a thing. Yeah, it's a thing. But, you know, my my interest in business yeah it's kind of interesting you know you 
you buy something, you resell it, you make some money. What do you you work hard, hopefully, and you make money. But I I enjoy um, meeting people because it's bra fitting, so it's service. It's not we don't sell on the internet. You come right. in, it's like being with your barber, your tailor. It's that old fashioned idea of the relationship between women, one woman and another woman. And to me, that's what's interesting. And in a way, it's it's sort of full circle to some of the discussions you were talking about at the conventions, the idea of meeting people mm-hmm. and learning their stories and oh, yeah. how these different things, you've created something that is helping people in a different way and you get to meet them directly. Yeah. I lo- yeah, I was just, to me, it's always like a, my interest in acting is, is telling people's stories, either, right. you know, as myself, as the character or talking with people, listening to their stories. I mean, my, seems like my my art and my passion is people. It's people. I love that. Well, before we head out, one thing I like to ask every guest on the show, since we are a uh, a program in service to cinema, have you seen anything recently that you like that inspires you? It doesn't have to be new, but what are you watching? Well, I was thinking about, you know, horror, and I was at the convention talking about horror films, and I was saying how I loved Hereditary. Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. I... I mean, well, Toni Collette was just an amazing actress, but that that film stuck with me, and it was. I haven't seen their their newest film. I have not seen it yet. I'm looking oh, forward Midsummer. to it. Oh, Midsummer. Yeah, I have not seen it, but I that film is one of the best films that I have seen. It was so horrific. It was, um, it, you know, it was so much about loss and grief that. At the end, when it finally, oh, I don't know, spoiler, whatever, but, <laughs> oh my God. Oh. When it goes to that place. When it goes to that other place, it's almost comforting. Yeah. It's almost like the happy ending. Because, like, the sad ending would be is just that it's just grief about losing a child. <laughs> yeah. it's, it's, it was such an incredible film. I, I It's such an exercise in grief. As you said. And what's interesting, too, is I'm thinking back to the beginning of the conversation and how we talked about sort of that early attraction to to horror movies that are about more than just whatever the horror is. Like Night of the Living Dead is not really about zombies in the same way that Planet of the Apes is not really about the apes. And Hereditary and all of its kind of tragedy and trauma isn't really about whatever devil cult and doubt is put peddling. You yeah, know? yeah, 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 yeah. And well, that's what all of it. I mean, I, I was in this really gross um, horror film with Robert Patrick called Autopsy. Have you? Oh, I know of, have not seen, I will confess. But Well, it's interesting because that's like tons of blood, like buckets. <laughs> <laughs> like the first time I saw the scene, I was like broke up. I was like, you have got to be kidding me. But I was thinking even those kind of like slap, it's about something, it has to be about something deeper. Sure. You know that that makes people want to see it, even if they're just screaming with the buckets of blood and the and the evil nurse. I played an evil nurse. You know, gets her arm. (laughs) I think that's the power of horror. I think when horror done well, it it can be the strongest of genres because because you can use that monster to represent other things that we're struggling with. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Like sexuality and the horror of nature and the horror of um, medicine and losing control. Oh, yeah. Aging. I mean, the, uh, different things of the of horror. Yeah, horror is an 
It's an incredible genre. Well, and like you said, at the end of the day, it's ultimately all about people, and that's what makes it compelling if told right. Uh, yes. Uh, so, Jeanette, what's next for you? I mean, obviously, you're opening a new store. Is there anything else on the the periphery uh, horizon that we can look for? Well, um, the store is one, um, or stores, I should say. Yes. I don't want to give the ghost away. But um, I just, because i am been able to sort of, after 10 years, move myself out of the stores and just kind of work sort of marketing-wise, I've um, recently started doing voiceovers. And um, I love, it's to me, it's even, in a way, it's great because I get to disappear even more. Right. And become all these different characters, you know, cartoons, games, completely with, you know, my voice and not have a body. <laughs> it's, odd. it's weird. It's kind of like an AI thing. But I, yeah, no, I just have signed with a voiceover agency and I've been starting to do that. So that's... Oh, so we need to keep our ears open. Yeah. Uh, so I like to ask, uh, where can people find you in the great wide world, uh, whether it be your website for your, your stores or uh, if there's a social media presence? Oh, yeah. Well, the, um, okay, the store is Jeanette Bras and spelled J-E-N-E-T-T-E, Jeanette Bras, um, and um, JeanetteBras.com, and my Instagram, which I do, and Twitter is, again, just Jeanette Bras, and Instagram and Twitter, I just kind of mix up my all the different parts of my life, the lingerie, the horror, the <laughs> <laughs> it's the, the kids, the cats, all of it is just under one... Uh, a perfect storm. It is. <laughs> uh, Jeanette, thank you so much oh, for coming you. on the show today. Listeners, I don't even need to tell you, please go check out Jeanette's amazing resume of work. If not, I'm sure you've seen these films, <laughs> but it's time to revisit and rewatch and see some of the ones that we talked about that maybe you haven't because uh, there's many treasures to behold. Jeanette, thank you so much. I'm Michael Verratti. This has been Dead for Filth. Yours always in glam and gore. Good night. And good luck. Dead for Filth is a Reverie original podcast, executive produced by Aaliyah J. Daniels, LaShawn McGee, Chris Rodriguez, and Damian Pelliccione. The show is produced by Drew Phillips and sound engineered and edited by Josh Perkins. Download the Reverie app and use the code FILTH for 25% off your first three months. <laughs>